right, here we go. All right. So it's Monday morning at 9 a.m. We got to get dancing already, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Love it. Get that energy going. Love it. Yes. Hey, hello, everybody. Welcome to Heart and Hustle, visionary healers, movers, and shakers. And my cat is in the background ready to welcome you as well. Right <laughs> my on. Dog, my dog is at my feet. And I am Paulette Reese-Denis. I am your tribal hostess. I am your movement motivator. And I love bringing you um, amazing people who are doing really great work in the world. And today, and actually what's really fun about this interview coming up is that this is the first guy that I've interviewed on this series. <laughs> hey. So Jeff, you are you are a privileged soul this morning. <laughs> um, I feel privileged. I'm so yeah. happy to have you. So I'd love to welcome our guest today is Jeff Bell, and and you live in California, is that right? right. Yeah, I live actually in Concord, California. Okay, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna let my song fade away here, so we can just get down to our juicy conversation. So, and how, how are you doing this morning, Jeff? I'm doing fabulously well, thank you. I hope you are too, and I hope everybody listening, viewing, is also having a great day. Yeah, yeah, and get this week started off with some power and some, some momentum and some magic and, and inspiration, right? Absolutely. So you are kind of a magician of sorts, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess so. Um, I would... I, I don't know, you know, there's, there is some baggage on the word magic a little bit among some of the people I work with, mm. so I probably would use the word shaman instead. Okay, there you go. Awesome. That works yeah. for me. I love it all. Yeah. I, love, I love energy. I love creating magic and creating energy shift and raising energy and uh, focusing in on all of the intuitive and spiritual elements that we have um, available to us to do the healing work that we do and to and just to be right. in the world right absolutely yeah um i i can't imagine being in the world without those connections and those resources and that level of guidance right i think right. it would just be too hard and it, it wouldn't be fun <laughs> we probably wouldn't be here <laughs> yeah. Yeah. well i know for sure i wouldn't be here without that Awesome. Yeah. So um, you work with people who have and have had cancer. Right. Yeah. yeah. I you want to explain a little bit to our people what you do? Yeah. So basically I have two ways in which I help the people around me. One, uh, adults diagnosed with cancer who see the wisdom of not submitting to conventional oncology, which I'm adamantly opposed to. I, I think it's a disaster. Mm -hmm. um, I help them to find the right ways for their bodies to heal, for them to access the inner healing. And I use a lot of different modalities, all kind of integrated together. I've been doing this work for close to 40 years now, 41 years actually. And um, I have never done the same exact thing twice for different people. So the key to me, uh, or for me, is tapping in to 
what's going on with the specific person. Mm -hmm. And there are spiritual aspects to disease. There are emotional aspects to disease versus health. There are biological ones. There are biochemical ones. There are even on the level, uh, there are factors even on the level of electrical signaling between cells. Um, particularly with cancer, one of the keys is cellular respiration. So if the uh, whole energy production cycle within the cell itself is not working properly, uh, cancer is often the result. Mm -hmm. So how did you get into doing this work? You've been doing this for a long time. Yes, I have. Well, first of all, I'm 67 years old, and I've probably years lived... Long. Years yeah. young. <laughs> yeah, years young. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I've been on the planet this time around 67 years. That's a good distinction. Thank you. Sometimes I forget. Yeah. I actually don't feel old. I feel quite young. So. And you look it. Thank you. Thank you very much. So my dad went through medical school, and when uh, I was very, very young, three years old, actually, I was busy throwing a tantrum one morning because it was raining very hard, and my overprotective mom wouldn't let me outside. <laughs> uh, I guess she thought I would get washed away or something. And, and my dad, instead of getting angry at my tantrum, said, you're bored, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I am. I'm really bored. And... Uh, I was reading and writing by then. So, um, and by the way, I don't think that's extraordinary. I think almost all kids could do that if the adults around them didn't tell them they couldn't, you know? <laughs> so anyway, so I was reading and writing fluently by then. And uh, so my dad took me into his home office and he had a collection of about 5,000 human tissue slides that he had made when he went to medical school. And in those days, medical students still made their own slides. He had notebooks and notebooks and notebooks filled with his notes. And he basically showed me how to find the slides I wanted, how to use the microscope, which was a pretty sophisticated oil immersion lens microscope. And he just, you know, made me promise to be really careful and handle wow. the slides carefully because, you know, they're glass and delicate. And um, I took off. And so by the time I left high school I had most of my pre-meds done <laughs> and I was an awesome dad <laughs> yeah an awesome dad I'm I'm forever grateful and um, we had some bumps and and conflicts growing up because two strong-willed people and whatever yeah but, I, know that um, story. I know that story <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people do but um, for the last 25 years of his life and he made it till one month short of 95. We were absolutely best friends and madly in love with each other. And I actually became his medical resource for the last 20 some odd years of his life. Wow, So that's, that's a great story. Yeah, so, so I left high school, I had my pre-meds done and I started auditing. Sorry, my cat is really busy. That's okay. Um, you gotta be hushed now. Yeah. No, my, talk, cat, <laughs> my cat may visit us too. Oh, good. <laughs> the, the beauty, the beauty of working from home, right? I love it. It. it is. I love it. Yeah, I've got one cat who's a wild cat who won't come over here, and the other cat who's kind of a puppy kitty who will. Oh, nice. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Well, just just to go back for a minute, do you remember 
So I'm, I'm just a little bit younger than you, but I remember um, having those science science kit in a, like an aluminum folding carry case. And I loved those when I was little. I loved yeah. the little beakers and the little test tubes. And, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that made me think of that when you were talking about what your dad did. Yeah, yeah I, I remember growing up, I created a few unintended explosions. <laughs> Maybe a few of them were intended. I'm still not sure, um, <laughs> at least on some level. Mini pyro. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and there were occasions when there were some pretty wretched smells from some of my experiments. But hey, that's OK. Actually, both my mom and dad were pretty tolerant of all that, which, which was good. So anyway, um, also when I was five, oh, oh I was going to tell you about my adventure into medical school ah. and then I'll come back to something that happened <laughs> when I was five that was pretty important. So I started down the track. I was going to go to medical school and I was wavering back and forth between UCLA and USC. Uh, USC was a little more affordable, uh, but U UCLA seemed like it might be the better school. And I was basically auditing classes. And at one point I was sitting in a lecture hall with about 80 students first-year medical students, and there was a lecture on hematology. To this day, I can't remember the exact question, but something the professor said just seemed absurd. I mean, I couldn't wrap my mind around it. It seemed just completely to conflict with everything I'd learned so far. And with any, you know, semblance of logic that I could understand. So I raised my hand, he called on me, and I asked a question, and his answer, um, was the end of my medical career. His answer <laughs> was, um, it's not on the test, so I'm not going to answer it. Oh. At this point, I became irate, and I said, you mean we're being trained to hold people's lives and their trust in our arms and, you know, asking them to trust us, and because something's not on a test, you're not going to explain it? And his response was, sit down and shut up. So I uttered a few rude phrases, which I won't repeat here. We don't need them. I, I hear them. I totally hear them. <laughs> yeah, you can use your imagination and just make up whichever ones you want or whatever. And I stormed out. Five people left with me, which I was surprised. But I knew that going through medical school, I, I mean, I'd begun to see the discrepancy between what I'd been dreaming of literally since I was three and what I was experiencing. And there were little things coming up and I could see that the overall focus was too much on suppressing symptoms and managing disease and that there was not the level of curiosity that I thought was warranted on finding the causes and learning how to partner with the whole person to sure. restore health. And I was very disappointed. I remember I went into a, a pretty deep depression for about six months. And then I said, okay, time to pull out of this, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I went off into doing some uh, en engineering and, and um, complex construction projects. Where I also had had a background in that because I paid my way through part of my education doing that stuff early on. So... I did that for a number of years, and then I met an extraordinary healer, Dr. Thomas Enrique, 
uh, who was a originally from Portugal and was a chiropractor and an applied kinesiologist who had studied with, um, with uh, George, George, yeah, George Goodhart. Mm-hmm. Um, I think George, I, the first name I'm not sure of right now, but anyway, Dr. Goodhart, who was the founder of applied kinesiology. And this, Dr. Enrique was achieving the results. I mean, people were getting back to health he wasn't managing disease. He wasn't suppressing symptoms. And he was doing it the way I had dreamed of all that long. So I begged and pleaded, became his apprentice. And after a couple of years, he said, you know, it's time for you to go out and share your gifts with the world. Uh, you have really good intuition. You've got a great background. Um, now you have some skills that you were looking for. Go help people. And when you need to, come back and see me. And that was well over 40 years ago, and I've done it ever since. Great. That is awesome. <laughs> good, good, good. So you, you knew from early that was, your, that was your passion. Yeah. What you wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, with, with some, some reroutes. Yeah, yeah. It didn't follow the path that I had thought it was, was going to follow, but um, it certainly got me to right where I want to be. Mm-hmm. So it's like you, I mean, and people need to know that they, if they say, Oh, I want to be a doctor and then something along the way changes and it's okay to change. Right. Yeah. Follow, follow where your heart is taking you. You don't have to be stuck at right. one idea and one end product. Right. Every once in a while, a, a, a thought and self doubt comes up and says, you know, maybe I should have gone through medical school and that lasts about <laughs> five milliseconds. Right. Yeah. And then I remember why I left. And the truth is for me being the open hearted person that I am and also being a person for whom curiosity is probably the highest value in my universe. Mm, uh, going through medical school would have crushed my soul. Mm-hmm. It would have been, incredibly harmful for me. So overall, I'm very grateful that I had the wisdom and self-confidence to just say, you know, this is not the right path. Yeah. And then you found the people to help you further along your path. Yeah. It's actually interesting. I met Dr. Enrique in one night in a sushi bar where I'd taken my dad for dinner and that's how (laughs) our paths crossed. So it's, Almost kind of like grand design kind of pulled it together for me. Excellent. Of course yeah. it did. <laughs> of course. Of course it did. Yeah. yeah. Ask and you shall receive. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, I'm, I mean, I was good at engineering work and good at the projects I did and mm-hmm. everything, but my heart wasn't really. Right. I, I knew it wasn't the reason I was put on this planet. Good. That's so important. Yeah. So to feel that calling, to feel that purpose. And I know a lot of people, you know, have trouble finding that. They don't right. know what their purpose is. And they, they um, uh, try so many different things. And it's like, just listen. Just slow down and listen. Instead of fill yourself up with more, just slow right. down and listen to find that path, to find that person, to, to allow it to come to you. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. And the other thing is, in looking at the way that our 
economy and our world is working today. I think that more people would do well to ask themselves whether they want to just accept the what looks like the pragmatic solution of working in some corporation. I mean, you know, 40, 50 years ago, if you went to work for IBM or Ford or something, you had job security, you had all those reasons. And I, I'm not even sure it was wise to do that then, but at least you had real job security. Now, that that's all gone. That's all gone. You know, you can be fired at the drop of a hat. They can be downsized. All kinds of things can happen. Yeah. So I really don't believe for most people that working for some big corporation and thinking that now that means you don't have to concern yourself with, you know, earning your living really because it's all taken care of for you. That's become pretty much of an illusion, I, I believe. I, I do think that there are people that are meant to be doing that, though. Yeah, yeah. That, that's why I said most people. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, it's, it's allowing yourself to be where you want to be, to feel good about where you're at, and to love what you're doing. Right. And I think a lot of people get disillusioned with their jobs, and they think they're not supposed to like them. Right. You know, or they become cynical, and it's like, well, why are you doing that if you don't like it? I mean, yeah. I've done that with some of my clients. It's like, well, let's really work. Let's look at your work. Let's figure right. out what it is you don't like about it and see if you can fall back in love with it or fall in love with it if it's, think, if it's where you think you want to be. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay. And, you know, I don't have to not like my job. <laughs> right. And, and that actually has a strong bearing on, on health and on oh, yeah. cancer very specifically. One of the things that, one of the first things I do with people when they come to me for help with, with cancer uh, is to do kind of a survey of everything in their life. What do they like in their life? What do they love in their life? What do they hate in their life? Because my belief is that if you are spending too much of your time doing things that you not only don't like, but maybe even hate doing, then it's very hard for your body and the rest of you to stay healthy because it becomes desperate and it starts looking for a way out. Right, right. Yeah. So, so, and so your work now is, is predominantly with cancer patients? Yeah, every once in a while, somebody will show up and ask me for help with something else. I've, I've helped a number of people with MS to get out of wheelchairs and get back to living. Ooh, yeah. And that's, that's actually easier than it sounds. Uh, it's really not that hard most of the time. Um, and what I found is that contrary to kind of popular belief, I guess I'll call it, the body wants to be healthy. It wants to be in, in, in a healthy homeostasis where everything's in balance. Mm -hmm. And although there are things specific to cancers and specific to heart disease and specific to liver disease, and all of these things have specific things that are, are specific characteristics that point you in the direction of using certain specific modalities and measures to reverse them and get them back. The core principles are pretty much the same, you know? 
build up the immune system, mm. get rid of the toxins, be they biological, biochemical, environmental, emotional, spiritual. Mm. You've got to detox the whole thing. Make sure the person has uh, a really strong reason for living. Mm -hmm. Make sure that they have access to their emotions. <laughs> That's a big one. <laughs> Blocked access to emotions is very, very harmful. And so many of us do. You know, uh, it wasn't safe for me to burst into tears as a kid, particularly. So it took me a lot of inner work to get to the point where I'm pretty comfortable. You know, I, I'll stand on stage, you know, in front of 150 people doing a workshop or something and I'll just burst into tears because something moves me and it's taken me a lot of work but I've gotten to the point where I'm pretty comfortable with that that's beautiful yeah but it I there's still a little part of me that says I don't know about this <laughs> and, and I'm okay and I just I just honor that voice and say it's okay for that part of me to be uncomfortable my heart is telling me it's okay to do this and I'm doing it and um, yes, there's some risk involved, and I accept the risk. Well, and there's that whole thing. Uh, the word and, and vulnerability comes up a lot these days. It's kind of the big buzzword. And how yeah. beautiful it really is to be vulnerable. You're human. You have feelings, and you're in touch with them. And it's okay to show them. Right. And, and I think it's particularly a problem... Um, particularly a problem with men in our culture. Um, we're not allowed, or not, not allowed, that's too strong. We're not encouraged. Right. Um, and it's very subtle in some ways, and in some ways not so subtle. Mm -hmm. But we're not encouraged to really be in touch with our emotions, particularly the more vulnerable, uh, you know, set of emotions. Yeah. And I think, I think that causes a great deal of harm in the world. Well, and even even I I did that at one point or several points in my life, right? And build walls around my heart. And that's actually what the name of my my new poetry book is is called Breaking Down the Walls. Mm, I love it. I know. Look, I'm so excited. Here it is. Woo! Awesome. Yeah, one of my favorite songs. I I use music a lot in my work. Oh, good. And I listen to music a lot because it's part of how I can stay in this otherwise challenging world. Mm. Um, basically, if you take away my oxygen, I'll figure something out. If you take away my music, <laughs> I think I'm done. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so one of my favorite songs is, is an old Sting song. I think it's called Fortress Around Your Heart or something yeah. like that. And it's all about building a fortress around the heart. There you are. Yep. Yeah. Break down that wall, people. Yeah. Down and that I, can, wall. I can feel the emotions coming up just thinking about it mm, and, nice. and hearing it, hearing it in, 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 in my head, kind of, in, in my heart. Awesome. It's, There's yeah. definitely, definitely songs yeah. that just can rip you up. And I love that. Yeah, it's very, very powerful. And so um, one other thing that really got me focused, actually two other seminal events in my life got me focused on cancer. Um, I already knew by the time I was five that I was going to become a physician or so I thought. And, you know, I was dedicated and spending every spare second studying and 
just doing everything I could to move in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was five, my beloved grandfather, who had been this virile, tall, extremely well-built um, man in his early 70s, uh, 6'2", 240, not an ounce of fat on him, still could do 50 push-ups and clap his hands in between. <laughs> you know, the whole deal. I mean, the guy was Superman. And, you know, I loved him because he would take me fishing and do all these cool things with, with me when I was a kid. Well, one summer when I turned five, he went from 240 and being the picture of health, or so we thought, uh, obviously as there was something going on with his health for much longer than that, to less than 100 pounds, and then he was dead. Oh. And when I would ask, and of course I was devastated, <clears throat> getting choked up. And when I would ask the adults around me, even my dad who'd been through medical school, what happened, they would use this word, cancer, and then I'd say, well, what is cancer? How does it work? Why does it happen? And what do you do about it? And nobody could give me an explanation that made any sense to me. It just, it, it sounded like, you know, the gods were angry and threw a lightning bolt at them or something, which I didn't believe that. So I had no way to resolve this in myself and to come to terms with it. And I was just very upset. So, and my cat is here. Hi, Mickey. Oh. <laughs> anyway, anyway um, I knew he'd show up sooner or later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, turn on the video camera and the cat shows right, up. Of course. <laughs> Might as well meet him. Here he is. This is my puppy kitty, Mickey. Aww. Hi, Mickey. Mickey. A, oh, he's purring. What a beauty. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Anyway, um, okay, Mickey, go play. Go catch a mouse or something. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, um, so I started going to the library and finding books on cancer. Most of them didn't make any sense to me until when I was 13, I found the translated works of Otto Warburg. And uh, I started reading those and bam, it was like, oh, this actually makes sense. Now, the prevailing model that the war on cancer follows mm-hmm. is what's called the somatic model of cancer. And what that is, is it, it postulates, or I should actually say it insists, which is one reason why the war on cancer has delivered just terrible results. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, the war on cancer has spent probably three times what the space uh, program has spent. And the space program succeeded at least, I mean, it wasn't without its flaws, but it succeeded in at least getting humans out into outer space and bringing them safely back to Earth most of the time. Again, not perfect, but still pretty spectacular results, okay? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have satellite technology that we all take for granted now. So it has accomplished things that are quite amazing. In contrast, the survival rates for cancer, for most cancers, there's a few little exceptions here and there, uh, from having spent three times the time, money, and resources on the war on cancer, and even, you know, as long in terms of span of time, 
the results are dismal. The survival rates, contrary to what the PR people will tell you from the various research institutions and larger oncology practices, you know, like um, MD Anderson and Cancer Centers of America and all that, um, the survival rates are not substantially better. And for some cancers, I would say the survival rates are worse. Mm. And of course, the rates of people actually getting cancer and being diagnosed with it have increased dramatically. So the reason for that is basically, it reminds me of an old joke. Okay, this guy comes out of a bar one night and he sees this other guy down on his hands and knees on the corner under the streetlight, frantically searching and the guy's clearly agitated. So he walks over to him being a good Samaritan and says, can I help you? What's, what's going on? He says, I lost my car keys. So he gets down and they're looking and looking and looking and finally after about 20 minutes and they're not finding him, he says, are you sure you lost him here? And he says, no, I didn't lose him here. I lost him over in that other corner over there. He says, well, why aren't you looking over there? Well, there's no streetlight over there, you know? And so the war on cancer insists that DNA damage is the cause of cancer. Mm. And I can prove to you that it's not. Here's the, here's the, the, the proof of that, um, or close to absolute proof. I, I don't want to overstate it. So if you take a typical, let's say, a breast cancer tumor, maybe about the size of a golf ball, okay, it's got a few billion cells in it, and you randomly sample a thousand cells and you analyze the DNA in it, you will find DNA damage. But guess what? The DNA damage is not congruent. In other words, this cell, this cell, this cell, this cell, all of them have radically different DNA damage. So you would think if DNA damage was what was causing the cancer, that each of those cells would have the same DNA damage. Doesn't that make sense? Mm -hmm. It's pretty logical. Now, what you will find that is congruent in every single one of those cells is that the mechanism of metabolism, in other words, the biological mechanism which you might remember from high school biology, it was called either the vitamin C cycle or the Krebs cycle that takes place inside the mitochondria. That is, the damage there is congruent. The cancer cells have fewer mitochondria and the mitochondria that are present are not able to function doing what's called normal aerobic respiration. In other words, taking normal fuels, um, sugars and uh, amino acids and proteins and so on and breaking them down, combining them with oxygen and producing the energy that's needed to uh, keep the cell alive and to allow it to function. It's not able to do that. So what's happening instead is it's forced to use basically something that's called, uh, that's not to get too technical, is a fermentation process. Mm -hmm. And this is what Otto Warburg wrote about about back in 1920, and it's actually named after him. It's called the Warburg Effect. And of course, we've advanced, and those of us who are not constrained by the somatic model, which I am convinced is 100% wrong, um, have taken it forward, and we've gained increased sophistication 
For one thing, we have electron microscopes now, and we've got better tools, and we've got computers that are very powerful for doing computer modeling and analysis and so on. So we know more about it. But the core principle is there. And what happens is, yes, there's DNA damage in those cancer cells, but the DNA damage is actually caused by the mitochondrial and metabolic dysfunction. So what happens is when, when, when fermentation becomes the primary means of energy creation, you wind up with a tremendous amount of lactic acid and other toxins inside the cell, and it, the cell's detox mechanisms get overwhelmed. So in, in, in essence, the intern, in, interior of the cell is now poisoned. That damages the DNA. It also turns off something called apoptosis, which is the mechanism whereby cells only live so long and then die. And it also turns off the regulator, the regulatory mechanisms that control cell replication rates. So those cells start replicating out of control. And that's basically what cancer is all about. Mm -hmm. And if you approach it from that point of view, as well as t paying attention to the emotional, spiritual, and the other factors, because all of those affect the health of the immune system and everything else. They also affect the will to live, which is crucially important. Um, so if you focus on those factors and you work with those factors, your success rate goes through the roof. Mm -hmm. And so there are a small number of practitioners, researchers, and even some outside-the-box physicians and naturopaths who mm -hmm. know all this stuff. Mm -hmm. and have been following it, and they're the ones whose, they call them patients, I call the people who work with me clients, but um, they're the ones whose patients are clients, mostly get well and stay well. Fantastic. That's yeah. great. By the way, Otto, Otto, just say one more thing. Otto Warburg won the Nobel Prize for his work, and for a very short period of time, mainstream medicine was paying attention to it, and then it dropped off the radar. Yeah, I wonder why that is. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, do you do you see your clients in person? Do you do a lot of uh, virtual work? Do you travel a lot? Do you, what's what's your what okay. your modes? Yeah. So uh, all of the above. Um, if people are local, I love to see them locally, and sometimes if they're too ill to come see me and they're local, I will still make house calls, mm -hmm. so I still do that, although I do less and less of it just because my schedule is busy to the point where it's very difficult for me. Um, I also have clients scattered all over the world. I've got somebody in Algeria that I worked with last year. Uh, I've got people in Netherlands, in Germany, in Japan, Canada, Australia. So I'm able That's particularly, yeah, I'm, I mean, the, the internet has really made all that possible because we can work over Zoom, um, which is my favorite video conferencing system right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it, you know, so it, it's, it's, I love seeing people face to face, but you know, I can analyze blood work. I can do the emotional work that people need. Um, I can help them find, you know, what's their core reasons for living, what are blocking those reasons. And um, I don't have to be face-to-face -face with them in person to do that work. 
That's good. That's so good. So good. So what, just really quickly here, we need to, to um, finish this up, but what about, so, so this is obviously really passionate and fulfilling work for you. It is. And so what has, if you were to tell our people, like, what's been some of the hustle? What's been a couple obstacles that you've had to cross? Oh. To, to get your clients to do the work you do, you know, anything. Yeah, so a couple of obstacles that are still present is one, I think that the prevailing concepts around cancer, the mainstream, they've done such a great job of marketing, and I'll just say it flat out, I don't wanna soft pedal this, they've brainwashed our culture into believing two things, into believing that you're, if you're sick, you shouldn't pay attention to it, you shouldn't be actively involved in doing something about it. Instead, you go to the doctor, and, and in essence, it's similar to dropping your car off at the mechanic, and you don't stay there and watch and, and actively <laughs> be involved in everything he does to fix your car. Instead, you, you say, I'll, I'll be back tomorrow and pick up my car. <laughs> or something, and you don't really want to know what he did. You just, you know, want to groan about the bill, pay it, and take your car back, okay? And we've been brainwashed into believing that that's the approach to health, and it really doesn't work. So while I don't want people doing, uh, you know, uh, trying to overcome cancer as a do-it-yourself project because mm -hmm. there's just too much to know, there's too many moving parts, and usually the time frame um, doesn't support that as a wise choice. I think that people need to be actively involved and need to take responsibility for their own health, and they need to find an expert guide to help them with it. Um, I also think that uh, I wish there was more emphasis on prevention, because let's face it, the best way to overcome cancer is don't get it. And the current statistics are appalling. The current statistics are that men alive today, one in two will be diagnosed at some point in their life. For women, it's slightly better at one in three. And by the way, this is another uh, reason why the, the somatic or DNA model doesn't make sense. It takes about 10,000 years for significant changes to uh, the gene pool of a complex organism like a human being. And a hundred years ago, cancer was rare, and now it's tied with heart disease for, as the number one killer. So DNA, I don't think so. Doesn't make sense. Um, do we have time for one more quick story? Uh, yes. Good. Okay. So I mentioned that uh, I've had great teachers, and I have. One of them was Nicholas Gonzalez, mm -hmm. uh, who ran for many years one of the most successful cancer clinics in the world out of New York, and uh, I, I met him at, at several conferences and just a big-hearted, wonderful human being. And somebody asked him at one of those conferences, what's the predictor of who gets well and who does not when they're diagnosed with cancer? He thought for a second and he said, having a purpose to your life, living your purpose, having the will to live, having a reason to be here is the number one factor. Mm -hmm. So, um, a number of years ago, a grandmother in her mid-60s came to me in, uh, with cancer. She had uh, advanced breast cancer, and uh, 
before we would do any of the biological stuff and everything. I mean, I gave her some things to do and stuff, but um, I asked her, I said, what's your reason for living? And she said, well, I don't trust my daughter. She's kind of a flake and I'm worried about how she'll raise the kids. So I have to be here to, to help make sure my grandkids grow up okay. And I said, you know, that's a noble thing and I respect you for it and I honor you for it. And you know what, it's not good enough. That's an external reason that's based on obligation. It's not about the joy that's in your heart. I want you to go away for a week, do some journaling, do some writing, and let's get to a deeper level. And I gave her some specific prompts. She came back, and I may start crying because this moves me, but she came back a week later and said, you know, when I'm sitting on the porch as the sun's going down with a couple of grandkids on my lap and I'm reading to them, I experience such cosmic divine joy. I want more of that. And I said, okay, now we're cooking with gas. Mm -hmm. Now we can get to work. And of course she got well. Awesome. I love that. Yeah. Love that. And it's, it's just wild how some people can live for so long uh, without having, without being able to find that purpose. Yeah. And it's, it's prevalent. I mean, I see it all the time. You know, people aren't sure what they're doing or why they're doing it or what they're here for and they're unhappy. And, but, but, you know, the good news is that they're unhappy and they want to make it better. They want to, they want right. to, change it. they want to. Yeah. And, and, and I'm mindful of the fact and inspired by the fact that no matter what your circumstances are, if you're motivated to do it and you have the wisdom to look within, you can find your purpose. Like I, I know Nelson Mandela was incarcerated for 27 years in one of the most brutal prisons on planet earth in Robbins Island. And he said that he found a reason every single day to grow, develop, learn, and to find some joy in life. And if he can do that, the rest of us can certainly find our joy. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, well, this has been so great, Jeff. Thank you for yeah. sharing the stories. you got some great stories in there. And for doing the work you do. And it's just so great. And, um, of course, I will give you all his contact information in our blog so you can reach out to Jeff. And do you have a mailing list? And Yeah, I do. Um, uh, my newsletter has been a little bit dormant, but I do have several Facebook groups and pages and I'm pretty active on those. I'm getting ready to fire up my newsletter again because people are just banging on the door saying they need it, they need it, they want it. And, oh, good. You know, I That's share right. all kinds of things, some of it obscure, like how to properly test your body's pH, which is important. Mm -hmm. and almost nobody knows how to do it um, properly. And there's just... You know, I've gathered so much stuff, how to use white mistletoe extract to boost the immune system, which is a relatively inexpensive and very, very safe way of building up your immune system. There's so many things like that that, you know, I've been collecting for my whole life. Sure. And, and, and so I do have ways of sharing those. I have some emotional and spiritual stuff about cancer, information about cancer on my website, which is myhealthoptimizer.com. I don't have very much medical or biological uh, information that's directly around cancer on my website because 
there are some pretty stringent guidelines. And if you start doing that, uh, you attract unwanted attention. Right, don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, but, but I have, you know, I have artic lots of articles and tons of information that I've published quietly over the years. Excellent. That's great. Well, I'd love to read more of your stories and your writing. So, so sure. that'd be great to get down to that. Add that to that list. <laughs> okay. Ah, sweet. Well, thank you again for very much for giving, giving us your time and your, your presence. And thank you everybody for being here, for listening and watching Heart and Hustle, Visionary Healers, Movers, and Shakers. Again, I am your tribal hostess, Paulette Reese-Denis. I thank you for being here. And as our, as our episodes grow into the second year, I'm really excited to be able to continue bringing you these fabulous people to inspire you and teach you and just show you what else is going on in the world. And, and that's pretty freaking awesome, right? It is. And thank you so much for the work that you do. I'm, I'm just very grateful and thank you for having me as your guest. And I have tons more to share, so down the road, yeah. maybe some more. <laughs> right on. All right. And we can just kind of move out with a little bit of tune here. Life will never be the same. That's right. All right. There's our kitty cat. Mine finally went to sleep. <laughs> so, all right, everybody, until next time. All right. Say goodbye, Mickey. <laughs> Later.